tomorrow is National DNA Day. Who knew there was such a thing? It commemorates the discovery of DNA's double helix in 1953. And here to celebrate DNA and all things in forensic science is one of the attorneys in Chicago most knowledgeable about the issues of forensic science and its use in the courtroom, Brendan Max. Brendan has been with the Cook County Public Defender's Office for 25 years defending um, indigent defendants, but currently he is the chief of the Forensic Science Division. Thank you for coming on, Brendan. How are you? Hey, Karen, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back and for celebrating National DNA Day. <laughs> it is it is exciting. Um, so, yeah. you know, I, uh, you know, I think we're all we watch forensic files and we watch all these cases get solved with fingerprints and trace evidence and, and we're, we're fascinated by it. Um, but you as a, your job working for the public defender's office, tell us a little bit, first of all, what what you do and in, in that role when it comes to the public defenders in Cook County. Yep. So uh, at the Public Defender's Office in Chicago, we're lucky enough to have a forensic science division. I'm the chief of that division. And myself and a team of seven attorneys, um, we are really tasked with investigating forensic evidence that's used by police and prosecutors um, in search of conviction of Chicagoans. And our job is to look in and investigate the reliability of that forensic evidence. And at times, challenge that evidence when it's not reliable. The, the the sad fact is that the criminal justice system has a really bad track record of being able to ferret out itself um, unreliable forensic evidence. There's a long history of bite mark evidence, hair comparison evidence, shoe print evidence, and a ton of other evidence kind of coming into evidence first and not till after the fact that the criminal just, justice system asks, it, asks itself, is this really reliable enough for us to, to rely on it to get to convict people. So in Chicago, it's the task of myself and the attorneys who work with me to do that investigation up front and make sure that um, we don't add to the tally here in Chicago of people who have been convicted based on really questionable forensic evidence. And there's and there's been uh, a lot. And, you know, I, I guess the, the point, too, is that, you know, jurors want that DNA. They want that hard evidence. They they are used to seeing it on the shows that we watch. Um, and they, they, they believe it. They believe in it. They think it's infallible. And, and as you're going to talk a little bit about this, it's not. And although it's good at convicting and good at finding the perpetrator, it's also good at convicting the wrong people if it's not properly used or not, uh, you know, in some ways faulty. So let's let's start with the issue that you wanted to talk about, which is shot spotter. Uh, can you tell? Uh, it's been installed in about 110 American cities. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about it if they don't know what that is? Yep. So shot spotter is essentially a computer algorithm, a computer program, and what its job is to do is um, is to listen in certain Chicago neighborhoods for the impulsive sound of, uh, of a loud uh, noise that might be gunfire. There are sensors that are set up in neighborhoods. They're on streetlights and on top of buildings. And uh, those sensors listen for noises. They send uh, data about those noises back to, uh, back to a headquarters in California. And then what ShotSpotter does, it's a private company. It's a private for-profit company. What it does is it has a uh, computer code, some, an algorithm. And that algorithm attempts to determine whether that noise that was heard in a Chicago neighborhood, whether it originated from gunfire, um, and if it did, it attempts to kind of estimate the location of that uh, of that noise event. And now, the scientific concept is pretty straightforward and simple. If this were done in like you know a, a wide open cornfield in southern Illinois without a bunch of uh, complex urban noises, um, you know this system could function pretty well in theory. But the question and the problem is in Chicago, 
how well does a system like ShotSpotter function in attempting to discern just the noise of gunfire when there's so many other noises that both mimic gunfire and that we know from the research trigger false alerts with with, uh, ShotSpotter. In fact, um, what the city uh, inspector general, the Chicago inspector general, found last year is that about 90% of the time when ShotSpotter alerts police to respond to a location of what they say is gunfire, about 90% of the time police get there right away and encounter no real evidence of gunfire, meaning uh, no victim, no witnesses, no fired casings, no bullets, no nothing. And it really raises the question of how accurate and reliable is this system? And when we started digging into it about a year or two ago, when I started representing a guy named Michael Williams, who was charged with murder in Chicago primarily on the basis of shots fired evidence, what we found out was not only was this system never proven to be reliable before Chicago implemented it and paid tens of billions of dollars to run it, um, but that um, it had this really bad false positive problem. And in fact, there were a number of police agencies around the country who started using ShotSpotter before Chicago and then who discontinued use after they found that ShotSpotter was being triggered uh, on false alerts from everything from traffic noises to construction noises to uh, weather to all kinds of innocent uh, fireworks, all types of innocent noise would trigger these false alerts by shot spotter. So, so it's a pretty controversial um, so, uh, so I get that's being used. I mean, clearly the, the purpose is we want to conserve our, our resources because God knows we need as much, many resources as we can because of the crime in Chicago. So we want to make yep. sure that, that the police are deployed to as quickly as possible when there's a gunshot. But so what is the downside of having a system like this that is, is it, are we saying that this is uh, wasteful because police are being deployed to these scenes and it could be that it was just a car backfire or a garbage can noise or something? And, 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 and are there bigger problems with it? Yeah, so there's a number of problems. One is that when police get shots fired alerts, what they, are, what they are then primed for is that they're primed for that they're going to encounter uh, you know, a, a potentially violent situation, right? They've been alerted that uh, ShotSpotter says that there's gunfire. And that then affects the interaction of those officers with the citizens of Chicago that they encounter. Because what they're doing is they're encountering citizens who are kind of walking down the street who aren't engaged in any criminality that they can see. But those citizens are being uh, stopped, searched, and sometimes arrested based on the belief that this gunfire alert was real. So it it does create a dangerous situation, number one, where police respond to uh, neighborhoods thinking that there is, uh, you know, a dangerous incident of gunfire when it just might be traffic noises or construction noises. So so that certainly poses a risk to um, not only to citizens, but to police officers, right? Because you have them scrambling around the city um, for, uh, uh, according to OIG report, in an 18-month month period, 50,000 times. And over 40,000 of those times, they weren't um, encountering real evidence of gunfire. So it really creates a, a dangerous situation on the streets of Chicago. I mean, there are other problems um, you know, that are more policy problems that have to do with funding and whether this is the right um, use the, of resources. The right use right. Of, 
yeah. use of resources. But Brendan, it, you it know, you know, it's a dangerous situation. Yeah, I know. I get it for both police and, and citizens. Uh, let's, yeah. let's take a break and we come back. I want to talk a little bit about uh, maybe the uh, genealogy technology that we have in touch DNA and uh, sure. possibility of solving some of the cold crimes uh, in Chicago. You're, we're here with uh, Brendan Max of the Cook County Public Defender's Office, and I'm Karen Conti, and you're listening to WGN. We're talking about forensic science with Brendan Max from the Cook County Public Defender's Office. Uh, he is the chief of forensic science there in that office. Uh, we got a lot to cover. So, Brendan, um, we have all these different technologies, fingerprints, firearms examination, uh, DNA, and all these other types of evidence. And there was a study that was done out of Washington, D.C. that sort of cast some uh, not-so-good not so um, light on some of the um, accuracies. And can you just kind of bullet point some of the things where, where, where these kinds of technologies actually go wrong? Yep. So uh, it all came as, out as a result of some problems with the D.C. crime lab. What they found there uh, initially was they had problems with ballistic identification. So, so comparing casings at a crime scene to either a gun or another crime scene to, to try and identify the, the gun that was fired, that fired those casings. What they found in uh, the case that triggered the D.C. crime lab problem is that five different examiners there examined two casings, said that they were fired from the same gun and connected different, different crime scenes when, in fact, um, uh, those casings were not fired from the same gun. And what it highlights is, and what we're learning more about all the time, is just the subjectivity and uncertainty in a lot of forensic methods, something that maybe we weren't so aware of maybe 10 years ago. But between these crime lab problems and some other studies, what we've learned is that all these forensic methods that have th- were thought to be like completely reliable or 100% uh, accurate, um, are subjective and there's uncertainty there. So fingerprints, ballistic comparison, even DNA, where there's um, lots of subjective decisions that have to be made by examiners, uh, errors can happen. And that's kind of the big message from not only the D.C. crime lab problems, but some of the problems with other crime labs around the country. And you see this all the time in, in some of these shows. In fact, I was watching one last night where a guy was supposed to be supposed to be an expert in, in was footprints, and he had no expertise at all. And he was given full range to just t- opine that this was exactly the same shoe, and, and it put this guy in jail. And, of course, 10 years later, he, he it finds out he was, it wasn't even close to the same size, let alone the same brand or anything. So, uh, you know, I think that is a, a point to really focus on is that who are the real experts here and what are their qualifications and we need to make sure that those are good ex- good qualifications otherwise we have the wrong person in jail and the and the other person uh, out uh, committing more crimes um quickly uh touched dna can you talk tell us a little bit about that and about how it how it helps and how it can sometimes go wrong yeah it's a really interesting and promising technique so uh, a number of years ago, it would take like a full blood stain at a crime scene to generate results. And when you got results from that blood stain, it would be very informative of kind of what happened there. But the issue is that these DNA um, machines have become so sensitive now that they can generate a DNA profile from just a few skin cells. The thing is, we all shed millions of skin cells as we walk around in our daily life, and we're all leaving detectable amounts of DNA behind us. And the issue now is when you recover, let's say, a few skin cells from like a gun handle or a hat left at a crime scene or a door handle on a car, how meaningful is that even if you can identify the person who who belonged to the DNA? Because what we know now 
is that your DNA can remain in environment long after you were there. And what we also know is that your DNA can transfer from you to somebody else to another object quite easily. There's some real interesting studies that say, like, Karen, if you shake hands with me and then I touch a knife, we'll, we're as likely to found, find your DNA on that knife as mine. And when you're dealing with touch DNA and all you need is a little bit, what happens is that type of transfer situation becomes more common. And what it does is it confuses the meaning of the evidence sometimes and, and, and the criminal justice system has to step back and say, I know we have a DNA profile here, and I know it's off this hat or this gun or this door handle, but do we know how it actually got here? Um, we have the technology now to identify it. We have to, now we have to start second-guessing how did that DNA get there and what does it actually mean? Yeah, good point. Um, you and I have talked about this before. One of the cases, the cold cases in Chicago that just amazes me that we haven't found uh, the perpetrator is the Lane Bryant case. And this was the 2008 uh, murder mm-hmm. of five women in the Brookside Marketplace Mall in Tinley Park. Um, it appeared to be some sort of robbery gone awry, but we had a really good description of the person who, who committed the crime down to the braids in his hair and the jacket he was wearing and the jeans he was wearing. Tell us, you know, just again, not focusing particularly on this crime, but on a crime like this, where all this uh, time has gone by and we don't know who this person is, what new technology could the police and the investigators be using? And we only have a minute, but could you just kind of bullet point some things that might help us out in uh, solving this crime? Yep, there's always hope for, for older cases. They're solved all the time. And some of the some of the best ways to do that are number one, um, the databases that that open fingerprint and DNA are compared to those databases are always growing. There's always more people being added. So if, let's say, in the Lane Bryant case, there were DNA or fingerprint profiles that were generated, those can be registered in these databases and they can sit in those databases. And over the years, as more people are entered, it's, it sometimes happens that there's a hit and we can identify a suspect. There's also other technology on the horizon. Some DNA technology is starting to be able to not just identify like the numerical DNA profile of the person, but to generate information about what that person looks like. So I don't think we're quite there with that yet, but we will get there. And so there could be a DNA sample from a scene that could not just give us this numerical profile, but it could give you information of the appearance of, of, of the, uh, of the potential perpetrator. So that, so those are sources of right. uh, forensic evidence that, still give um, investigators hopes, even in cold cases. Sometimes they're solved 20 or 30 years later. Brendan Max, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Brendan Max, who's with the Cook County Public Defender's Office. He is the chief of the Forensic Science Division. Have a great day and happy DNA to you, DNA Day to you and to everybody out there. Thanks a lot, Karen. Appreciate it.